G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Well, Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen isn't even pretending to know what he's doing anymore. Check out this video he posted on Instagram on the weekend. Well, you've heard people say, what are we going to do with all these renewables? You can't recycle them. They'll just end up in landfill. And fair enough, a lot of people are very genuinely concerned about this. We sure are, Chris. Here is a video recorded by my colleague, Nick Cater, in central Queensland two months ago. It is of discarded windmill blades dumped a decade or more ago in the bush, rotting away and looking like a, some weird pile of archaeological relics. These are actually small windmill blades. They're about 40 metres in length. And here is footage also shot by Nick Cater of one of thousands of new monster blades, 80 metres long, being driven on specially built roads to their destination in the bush in New South Wales. Maybe Chris Bowen saw this footage on ADH TV and thought he'd better reassure the minions that these things are as environmentally friendly as he claims them to be. So, in yesterday's video, he said this. When it comes to wind turbines, a recent study showed that 85 to 95% of what's in a wind turbine doesn't need to hit landfill because it can be recycled or reused. Can be recycled. He doesn't say they are being recycled. Bowen doesn't cite the name of the report to which he refers, but it's probably related to the recent announcement from a Danish company called Vestas that claimed it had developed a new chemical process with which to break down the epoxy resins in the blades. Vestas is also not saying this process is happening yet, just that it will happen soon. It's probably just waiting for some European Union subsidy to kick in before they can scale it up. Well, so far, so little. Minister Bowen, what else have you got? Firstly, we will need to improve the technology of recycling renewables over time. But the good news is, the key things in solar panels, glass, aluminium, copper and silver, can all be recycled today just a bit of a complicated process to separate them to recycle them. Don't you love the body language? Don't you worry about it, you plebs. It's all under control. It's a complicated process, but the men in white coats are working on it. Meanwhile, forget that I ever said during the last election campaign that you'd pay less for electricity. What sort of a fool believes politicians these days anyway? Oh, and get ready for blackouts this summer. It's mildly reassuring that Australia is not the only country being sent into bankruptcy by this madness. The Telegraph in London reports today that a backbench revolt in the ruling Conservative Party is seeking to overturn a ban on new windmills in the country where energy prices are already through the roof. Quote, Ministers are poised to unveil changes to planning rules that will free up councils to give the green light to proposed turbines where there is broad public support. The proposal has attracted supporters from across the Conservative Party, including Liz Truss, the former Prime Minister. 
And Labor supports the idea, of course. But at least the proposal is locally driven. Unlike here, where the guilty rich in inner city mansions with two-rack tractors in the driveway vote in Teal MPs and send them to Canberra with the brief to install renewables anywhere but in their own electorate. But we do have one thing in common with the UK. We too are governed by a uni party. The coalition here is committed to net zero, just like Labor. Negotiating a way out of this is trickier than it should be. And to help us work, which, work out which, way of, which of the nation's dwindling options are least likely to force pensioners to freeze in the dark, slice migratory birds into feather dusters and cover the nation's productive farmland with solar panels and high-tension wires, let's bring in Stephen Wilson the Managing Director of Energy Consulting Firm, Cape Otway Associates, and an adjunct professor in the University of Queensland School of Mechanical and Mining Engineering. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Fred, great to be with you. Stephen, let's, let's just start by talking about Chris Bowen. Is he the most dangerous energy minister in Australia's history? Uh, well, that's a, a big call, Fred, but... Um he certainly seems to be making a pretty good shot of that uh, title, I'd have to say. <laughs> Very diplomatic, Stephen. Well, he posted a video on the weekend reassuring us that renewables, reassuring us that renewable energy materials are recyclable. Uh, it was a pretty nicely shot, you know, Instagram video. He went to a lot of trouble to, uh, to uh, put it together, but there wasn't a lot of detail. But really, the recyclable, uh, recyclability of uh, renewable energy materials, is that really the most pressing issue for the energy minister right now? Probably not. I mean, recyclability is something that may be true in theory, but I don't think it's actually happening in practice. They're not being recycled uh, at the moment, certainly not on large scale. This will be a big problem, Fred, as these technologies uh, reach the end of their service life which people imagine that you build these things and they're there forever, but they're not. They actually have very short lives. So this, there is going to be a wave of old solar panels and old wind turbine blades that's coming down the road and something needs to be done with that material. Yeah, I read uh, recently that the, they measure the, uh, the quantity of discarded blades uh, in Europe in the millions of tonnes. I mean, do you know what, they, what yeah. the authorities are doing with all this stuff at the moment? Oh, I think people are trying to work out what to do. But the, the thing is that um, the costs and the methods and the processes and the back-end supply chain has not been planned for, it's not being worked out, it's not in place. Yeah. Last week, the Australian energy market operator warned that there is likely to be rolling blackouts in South Australia and Victoria later this year thanks to a long-range forecast predicting what is now known as a wind drought, but you and I have traditionally known as summer. But this is the thing, Stephen. AEMO is also advocating for a transition to renewables, which, makes, it is, which is exactly what makes us vulnerable to these wind droughts. Stephen, how does this make sense? AEMO is advocating for renewables and then saying, 
our reliance on renewables will probably cause blackouts. What are they up to? Yeah, this is the problem. Um, the, the wind, people say the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. Uh, and we all know that. But the, and the problem is that there can be very long periods where there's very little wind. Uh, and the problem is that it's, it's not just a question of times when there's no wind. The problem is low wind, prolonged periods of low wind, even if you've got a lot of storage, will run your storage down. And at the moment, we don't have a lot of storage. So this is the fundamental problem, Fred, is that the, uh, these, these new technologies can displace the old coal plants, but they can't replace them. They can't provide all of the services and all of the reliability uh, that, that, we, that we've come to become accustomed to um, from the existing plants. Yeah, I think the word you use is parasitic, and we'll get to that in a moment. But um, I just want to show you a photo of a windmill in Germany being dismantled to make way for the expansion of a coal mine. Actually, I haven't got that photo here, but you might be familiar with it. Uh, it, it, it went around the internet uh, just a few days ago. It's a, uh, it's a windmill that's being dismantled, and in the background you can see a coal mine that's encroaching on its, on its uh, area, and Germany, in German authorities, in their wisdom, have, uh, set, have decided to uh, take the windmill down and dig up some more coal. I'm sure a lot of Australians would love to see this happening here. Instead, we get state and federal governments proposing to steamroll high-tension wires and renewable energy operations into Victorian communities, where often the same families have been working the land for generations. Um, you might be familiar with the work of the Melbourne think tank, the Institute of Public Affairs, which went through the region northwest of Ballarat and found red hot anger among, among farmers where these high tension wires and potentially windmills and solar farms were going to uh, suddenly appear. Now, Stephen, this is a massive project. It's clear that renewables are incompatible with our rural communities. But are they also incompatible with our existing energy infrastructure? Fred, I think that's what the German example shows us. You know, it, it's hard to tell if the situation in Germany is tragedy or comedy. But, you know, if a cartoonist drew a cartoon of someone taking down a, a wind turbine to access the coal seam underneath, it would have been perhaps, you know, you couldn't make it up, but it's actually happening now uh, in real life in Germany. Uh, you, you just, the, the problem is that these resources can't do the job that they're being asked to do and they're, that they're being expected to do. And, uh, and keep in mind, Fred, that in Germany, they have, Germany's not an island. Germany is a large country and it's very central in Europe, but it's connected with, I think there are 10 neighbouring electricity connections in the countries to the north, the south, the east and the west, all around Germany. And so they're one part of a larger picture. They can draw upon French nuclear. They can draw upon coal from uh, Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, but, and, and still they have problems, right, with the, the interruption of the Russian gas supply has caused them the kind of problems where they're doing what you've described. In Australia, we're on an island continent. We can't plug into neighbouring countries for our electricity. We are on our own. And, and the system has to be able to operate as a standalone system, because that's what it is. 
Precisely, and also, well, not only standalone, but we have the resources to power it. I mean, we have the, the raw materials to power. We have coal, uranium, gas, oil. I mean, quite often, Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen, when they hit some sort of, you know, speed bump on the, on the road to renewables, they blame the war in Ukraine. I mean, that's just, that's bogus, isn't it? Yeah, the gas prices internationally started rising um, well before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, and as you say, you know, we are very blessed with a great abundance of natural resources, and, and that has underpinned our energy system for all of our lifetimes. Um, coal is a part of it, more recently gas, uh, and, and as you say, uranium. So we've historically relied on our own coal. We've um, exported a significant amount of gas as well as coal to help our neighbours in the region, Japan and other countries. Uh, and all of the uranium gets exported to other countries. We, we've not yet started to use that ourselves. But, you know, here's the thing, Fred, you know, we've got a ban on nuclear energy. We've got people saying that gas should be prevented from being used in Australia. You know, no more gas stoves and what's going to come next, you know, the, the power plants. And we're being told we've got to completely phase out, close down, get rid of the coal-fired power plants. So you take out the nuclear, the gas, the coal, uh, and there's not much left. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Everyone wants to, everyone in power wants to do away with coal, don't they? What effect is that going to have? And it can't run the system. Right, okay. So how soon, how, I mean, how determined are the powers that be to get rid of coal and how soon is it likely to happen? Well, it seems that there are a lot of people that think it would be a great thing if the coal plants closed down as soon as possible. And I think what we're starting to do is, and all, all of the, uh, if we remove that before it's fully replaced, then the system is at risk of falling over. And in, in common language, the risk of blackouts will keep increasing. Speaking of blackouts, we just lost you for a couple of seconds, but you're back now. I think I got the gist of it. You know, um, we, are, we are discarding coal and renewables will uh, are, are unable of replacing it in any way, which, would, which pretty much leaves us with an urgent need to develop nuclear. Is that right? Yes. Look, if we want a system that has... Um low or no CO2 emissions, then, and we want it to be reliable and affordable. We don't want to go into perpetual recession. We don't want inflation. We don't want to undermine our productivity. Then we are going to need nuclear power plants. That's, that's an unavoidable conclusion. Right. Okay. Well, given all that, Stephen, I know you're not a politician, but what's your advice to any politician who needs, who wants to find a way to navigate Australia out of this mess? Yeah, my message is that we need to not put all our eggs in the one basket. We need to create options. We need to not be banning things and ruling things out. We need to all take a deep breath, calm down, and stop rushing towards something that may not work. And we need to realise that this great big scary thing called nuclear energy might not be a divisive issue. I actually think it's a unifying issue. It can bring together working people, conservative people, people concerned about the environment. And so if, if you've got something that unifies people, banning it seems to me a pretty crazy thing to do. 
Oh, Stephen, that's the best thing I've heard all night because after this ref voice, uh, voice referendum, we are going to need something that unifies the nation. I hope it is nuclear energy. Stephen Wilson, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's energy consultant Stephen Wilson. Coming up after the break, the bravest cartoonists in the nation stage a walkout of the evil Walkley Awards. Introducing the co-hosts of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him, so in the end I just said yes. Yeah, Nick told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just the knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it, just get below the surface of each issue. Oh yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf, you know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's, you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? Search Spotify for Parting Shots, the podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store, and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv. Welcome back. Now, there are things that woke people do that have tangible effects on our daily lives, such as locking us into 15-minute cities, making us all sit through welcomes to country, disconnecting our gas supplies and forcing us to take experimental vaccines. We either tolerate these things or risk the wrath of authoritarians by defying them, but we can't ignore them. Which makes you wonder about the things that woke people do with equal gusto, but which cause about as much disruption as an unarmed white security guard in the middle of a BLM ransacking a Nike store on the south side of Chicago. The writers and actors strike in Hollywood is an example. Did you notice it had started? 
is, is it even over? Does anybody care? Not to be outdone by the writers and actors in Hollywood, some of our own precious creatives have decided to also stage a united walkout. And if the effect on your life and mine was physical, you'd need to measure it in microns. The problem began when somebody noticed that the Walkley Awards, the annual backslapping extravaganza for the vainest people in journalism, discovered that the founder of the awards was none other than Sir William Gaston Walkley, who also founded the Ampole Oil Company. Hold the front page. It gets worse. Walkley, who died in 1976, once expressed concern that Australia's demographic changes meant it might one day, quote, cease to become a white man's country, unquote. Well, this forced the Walkley board to issue a statement on Saturday night, lest anybody think the board still held such views. Quote, his views do not re reflect the values, views and ethics of the Walkley Foundation. We apologise for the deep hurt and offence these statements will have caused for journalists and the broader community. Well, they needn't have bothered issuing that statement. Those people, who, those people who would have been offended have already found something else to be offended by anyway. The walkout is led by cartoonists which for most of them is the first amusing thing they've done all year. My next guest brings the wonderful world of William Walkley's oil industry and cartooning together. His name is Paul Zanetti, and for 40 years he was one of Australia's top cartoonists, working for a wide variety of newspapers and magazines. He is also the proud owner of many classic cars from the golden age of motoring, such as this Eldorado convertible and this beautiful black Cadillac, both of them shot outside his home on the Gold Coast. Zanetti doesn't work as a cartoonist anymore, but he, still, he is still funnier than half of the woke crusaders who still do, and he joins me now. Paul, welcome. G'day, mate. I'll have to live up to that, but thanks, mate. <laughs> No pressure. Paul, this walk out of the Walkleys is being led by cartoonists. When did cartoonists become so woke? Um, probably um, about the time that I got out of cartooning. But look, there's two basic boxes that you need to tick as a cartoonist. The first one is you need to be able to draw. The second one is you have to be funny, okay? So these particular cartoonists don't, these days, don't tick any of those boxes. So they've had to devise a new box. And, and that box is that you have to own a set of pearls and you have to clutch them. <laughs> and you, that's the only box you need to tick. Any cartoonist that can draw or is funny is not eligible to enter the Wokeleys. So you might have noticed there's been a subtle change in the title of the awards. Oh, yes, okay, the Wokeleys, yeah, yeah. The Wokely walkout, uh, it's a, uh, yeah. So the Australian's cartoonist, Johannes Leake, who's a friend of yours and mine, once explained to me that the process of cartooning was to first devise the joke, and if it worked, just use it, regardless of the politics or who it offended. 
Does that process still apply, do you think? Well, it should. The traditional way of drawing a cartoon is to is basically to draw an impulsive idea. So when I used to labour over an idea, it got staler and staler. So I look at a cartoon, um, the approach of drawing a cartoon as a knee-jerk reaction. So as soon as you um, hear a new story or you read a story, it's your first impulses that you grab and then you massage that, turn it into a cartoon and then you draw. Um, these days, Pretty much the criteria is that you need to be offended first and then you have to virtue signal your offence and it, it gets down to being to, to seeing who, who can be the most of, um, offended person eligible to draw a cartoon. Well, speaking of offence, I mean, this is the weird thing about wokeness, if you ask me. I mean, last week we saw Stan Grant call the ABC irredeemably racist, essentially. This is despite the ABC being agonisingly anti-racist and inclusive. And now we've got the Walkleys being boycotted by the very people who the Walkleys reward every year. Now, do you think wokeness will just one day just eat itself? It, it has to eat itself. It's the foolishness of it that even those who are the most woke are turning on themselves. They're offended by their own type. And, and this is the joke in itself, right? It, it, it's, if, it, if it wasn't so bizarre, it'd be totally laughable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to dine out on the fact that I was once nominated for a Walkley, but I'm now embarrassed by it. I mean, just entering oh, the Walkleys. Is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Now, look, you conducted your own protest against the Walkleys back in the day. Tell me about that. So around 1984, I entered a, a cartoon on Bob Hawke. That's how, how far back I go. And this, this is the day when the Walkleys were judging uh, cartoons on their merit, not on their ability to offend. Uh, so I drew a cartoon and scored the award um, and in those days, the um, Walkley Awards was run by the Australian Journalists Association or the AJA. And that was the industry union. So some time later, probably two or three years later, they mandated that to be eligible for the Walkleys, you had to be a union member, which I wasn't. And neither were a few of my mates. Bill Mitchell at the time, who was the cartoonist on The Australian, and Larry Pickering, we were never gonna be able to enter a Walkley. So I packaged up my award from a few years back, put it into a box and sent it back to them um, and uh, in protest and really haven't regretted it since. But it's going, that was going back to 1984 when there were conditions put on the Walkley Award. It should just be on merit. Yeah, well, just just let's look into that unionism aspect for a second, because you would have been quite the outsider being an anti-unionist and not a con, uh, not, not a lefty in publishing back in those days. I mean, even now, it's it mostly you know sort of the whole industry swings to the left. But you grew up quite conservative, didn't you? Well, I'm a product of Italian immigrants. My dad was an uneducated immigrant, came to Australia when he was 21. He was a cane cutter, eventually made his way down to Port Kembla, got a job in the steelworks and ended up um, creating his own 
contract company to BHP and ended up employing 200 men. So um, I saw my dad when I was a young teenager during the Whitlam era um, battling with the unions. So uh, he would always reward um, his more productive workers and then the ones who were not as paid as much because they weren't as productive. He was a bit of an innovator for an Italian migrant. He um, was taken to the unions and um, was ordered to pay his least productive workers the same rates as his most productive. And I can remember how that really shattered my dad. And I just, my dad was a very modest, hardworking man. He did 14 hours a day and gave a lot back to his men. And so I began to see from early days growing up in the Whitlam era and the union, and it was a very strong union movement. It, it, it did um, affect my view on, on life. And I saw there was a lot of unfairness going on with the, the union movement and saw just how it impacted my dad. So that shaped my view. So I, when I got into cartooning at the age of 18, 19, I'd already had some pretty firm beliefs about what I thought of unions. And then of course my Walkley experience, that just ratified my views. Your late friend, the great Bill Leake, who is, of course, Johannes's dad, he made one of the most astute observations about cartooning uh, just a few days before he died, in fact, at the launch of his last book. He said that Bill Mitchell, who you mentioned earlier, was the previous Australian's uh, cartoonist, once told Bill that uh, when you, uh, when you, to draw a cartoon or to devise a cartoon, you just take the news of the day and you imagine it to be as absurd as possible and, to quote Bill from memory, just draw what you see when you get there. But Bill's conundrum... (laughs) (laughs) But Bill's conundrum was the starting point was already beyond absurdity, so it made cartooning particularly difficult. Is that why you got out, Paul? Um, I kind of got tired of it. I'd done it for 40 years and I guess... It's like being in a band in a way. Um, you know, you see these band members, they kind of just keep repeating themselves. I think that drawing cartoons, you've got to be fresh. And I saw young, I saw, uh, I got out after Bill passed away and then I saw Johannes coming on and I thought, well, now the future of cartooning um, is secure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'd done my time. I, I, I had done my time and it was, it yeah. was time to move on. Yeah. And, um, Every day I see the work that Johannes produces for The Australian and a huge weight is lifted off my shoulders because I know that Australian cartooning is in a good place. It's got a rich heritage and it's got a great future with people like Johannes in it. Paul Zanetti, thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, mate. That's former cartoonist and definitely not a lefty, Paul Zanetti. Now, you may have seen the extract from professional surfer Owen Wright's autobiography, Against the Water, in the Weekend Australian magazine on Saturday. As his friend and fellow pro surfer Mick Fanning says on the cover of the book, Owen's story is, quote, the all-time sporting comeback, unquote. Well, you can say that again. Wright suffered a traumatic brain injury while in Hawaii in December 2015. He was in Hawaii to compete in the final event of the year, the Pipe Masters, as one of six contenders for that year's world title. But the brain injury robbed him of that chance. It was so severe, in fact, that he could barely talk or walk. 
let alone think straight. For much of 2016, he seemed, it seemed doubtful that he would ever surf again, let alone competitively. But he did, and spectacularly won the Quicksilver Pro at Snapper Rocks on the Gold Coast in 2018, and won Australia's first surfing Olympic medal, a bronze at the Olympic Games in Japan in 2020. I met Wright myself in February 2015, 10 months before the brain injury, when I did a profile of his family for the Weekend Australian magazine. The Wrights were the quintessential surfing family back then. Their father, Rob, raising five kids who were both skilled and ambitious. The previous generation of pro surfers often came from broken families in poor beachside suburbs. To them, pro surfing was not only a relatively lucrative alternative to their limited options in life, but glamorous too. The pro tour was madly hedonistic back then, and plenty of promising young surfers were burned out by the drugs and alcohol that flowed freely before, after, and even during professional surf contests. But the rights were a new generation. Raised by Dad Rob, a hardcore and clean living teetotal surfer, and Fiona, a dedicated, supportive mum. Owen qualified for the 2010 Pro Tour, aged only 20, and won Rookie of the Year that year. His younger sister, Tyler, followed him onto the tour and would go on to win two world titles. I spent a day with the family researching the story and they were both extremely hospitable and fun to be around. Their love of surfing was intense. But there is something about the story of Owen's injury that doesn't add up. Normally, this wouldn't matter much. Surfers are not always the most reliable storytellers. They come back from trips up the coast or overseas filled with exaggerated yarns about how huge and perfect the waves were just to make their mates jealous. Tall stories are part of surf culture. But the inconsistencies of this story matter because it has become central to the Owen Wright myth, which sports-loving Australians, both surfers and non-surfers, have lapped up in good faith. So let's pick it apart. In the book, Owen says he paddled out at Pipeline on the north shore of Oahu early on the morning of December 10, 2015, a few hours before the contest was due to start. He says, he says the waves were, quote, the biggest waves I'd seen at Pipe, unquote. This seems a bit unlikely. This is the first wave caught in the first heat just a few hours after Owen says he was in the water. It looks big, but it's not big by Hawaiian standards. 2015 was Wright's sixth year on the Pro Tour, so it's unlikely he'd never seen waves bigger than this at Pipeline. Wright doesn't say how many people were in the water for that early morning practice session, only that he paddled past all of them to catch his first wave. When he started to paddle back out, he got caught inside, which means a set of bigger waves approached and he was too close to shore to paddle over them. 
In the book, the first wave was 15 feet. But in a recent interview with sports journalist Mark Howard, he called the, he called the wave, quote, every bit of like 12 feet, unquote. In the book, he says the wave knocked him senseless. Quote, apparently when I surfaced, I was conscious, but white as a sheet, expressionless, a ghost, unquote. He doesn't say who made this observation, but it can't have been his friend Mick Fanning. When this incident was recounted for the ABC's Australian story in 2017, Fanning was central to it. It begins with a voiceover saying, quote, the day before Pipeline started, the boys were out for a warm-up surf, unquote. Well, hang on, the day before? In the book, it was the morning of. Whatever day it was, the imagery used by the ABC gives the impression that Wright and Fanning were in the water, either alone or with only a few other people. Fanning told the ABC that when he dived under that first wave, Wright was 10 feet in front of him. When he resurfaced, he looked around and saw Wright was 20 feet behind, but, quote, I didn't think anything of it. In the Howard interview, Wright recently doesn't mention Fanning being in the water with him at all, although he does make a vague reference to friends seeing him resurface 50 metres further in. This is five times the distance Fanning said Wright travelled while being pummeled by that first wave. Now, after that first wave, Wright got stuck in the impact zone and copped a set of 10 more big waves on the head. This is an unusually high number of waves for a set. Most sets are only three or four waves. Finally, he made it to the beach, Wright says in the book, where he was joined by Kiwi pro surfer Ricardo Christie, who had been washed in. According to the book, Wright then, quote, shuffled to the house, the whole way muttering, oh, I'm effed, I'm effed, unquote. Now, it's strange that not a single photographer recorded this. The beach at Pipeline is crawling with photographers during the contest, yet not one of them noticed a world title contender copping the flogging of his life in the impact zone, then shuffling up the beach, muttering to himself. The ABC story doesn't mention Ricardo Christie at all. Rather, it was Fanning who met him on the shore after they both caught a wave and paddled in. At this point, according to the Australian story version, Fanning wasn't even alarmed. That. And we both walked up the beach together, he seemed perfectly fine. Perfectly fine? In the book, Wright returned to the house and told his sister, Tyler, quote, I got flogged, unquote. He tried to eat some breakfast but couldn't taste it. What the F my sense of taste had gone, he says in the book. In the Howard interview, he says he was, quote, slurring my words a little bit, unquote, as soon as he got back to the house. 
In the book, he doesn't mention slurring until after he wakes from a nap, which Fanning says was around lunchtime, at which point he started to shake uncontrollably and convulse. That was when an ambulance was called and he was taken to hospital. So, what are we meant to make of this? From commentators Martin Potter and Joe Turpel at the start of the first heat that morning. I uh, just want a quick shout out for, for Owen Wright, you know, mate, we hope you're okay, we're going to miss you, but I'm sure he'll be back, uh, back and, you know, bit bigger and better and stronger. That's right, always thinking about Owen Wright, he said those things take time, so he's going to just get better and watch the show go down. He said things take time, what things? He's just going to get better and watch the show? At that moment, surf fans around the world were tuning in to watch Wright and five other, five other surfers compete for the 2015 world title. Now, Wright was going to just get better and watch the show. That's a bit cryptic, isn't it? Besides, according to Fanning, nobody raised the alarm until Wright woke from his nap at lunchtime. How did Potter and Turpel know Wright had already withdrawn from the contest? Fanning was also quoted on the Australian surf website Swellnet saying about Wright, quote, We surfed together, we talked, then the boys took him for food and he just said he wasn't right. I'm just hoping he's doing well and from what we hear, he's doing okay, so we're happy for that. The boys took him for food? In the book, Wright says he couldn't eat his breakfast and took a nap. He also says Fanning was there when he was convulsing and told him to, quote, hold on. In his recollections of the incident, Wright consistently emphasises the impact of the first wave that hit him, as you would. For a wave to give you a brain injury, it would need to hit you very hard. And in Hawaii, that is certainly plausible. Hawaiian waves can be heavy, although on this day they weren't particularly so. Wright doesn't mention that he was worried about drowning. Pro surfers are supremely capable in big waves, but copying 10 10-foot waves on the head after the first 15-foot wave gave you some kind of brain injury, well, that's quite a superhuman feat. Wright was scanned at a small local hospital, he doesn't say which one, and was found to have bleeding on the brain. The doctors called another ambulance and sent him to a, quote, larger hospital. Again, the hospital isn't named, even though Wright stayed there for more than a week. His brain was very muddled. Quote, I was delusional. It took me several days to let go of the idea that I would return to pipe and surf, surf for the title, unquote. The doctors told him he was worse than concussed. He had suffered a traumatic brain injury. One doctor said, quote, I'd compare the damage to the kind we see in blast victims from war zones or infants shaken with baby syndrome. Again, this is plausible. In Hawaii, the waves there are heavy. But it's weird that Wright is the only person known to have been injured in this way and by waves that are relatively small by Hawaiian standards. 
The ambiguities and conflicting versions of this story make it difficult to believe. Perhaps we will never know what really happened. None of this, of course, diminishes Wright's extraordinary recovery. To come back from such a serious injury, let alone to surf competitively again, is testament to his ambition and strength and worthy of enormous admiration. Better still, Wright went on to marry his girlfriend who cared for him throughout the ordeal and they now have a couple of kids and have settled down on the north coast of New South Wales. It is an inspiring and heartwarming story, the kind that sport mad Aussies absolutely love. I just wish there was a more believable version of it. And while we're still in the surf, you might recall two weeks ago, I mentioned this motley alliance of politicians. These are politicians from the Greens, Animal Justice Party, the Liberal Party, and even John Ruddock of the Libertarians, who is actually a regular here on ADH, who all outrageously oppose the deployment of shark nets at popular beaches in Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong this summer. These nets have been saving lives for almost a century. Since being installed every summer in the 1930s, there has been only one death at a protected beach in New South Wales. Similarly, there have been only two deaths in Queensland since nets and another lethal protection device, drumlines, were first installed there in 1962. But in this pagan age, animals are worshipped, and none more so than the almighty sharks. Smart politicians with one eye on focus groups have noticed there's political capital to be gained in opposing traditional lethal methods of keeping these dangerous predators out of our beaches and seeking more benign methods regardless of their effectiveness. It's no coincidence that the people who worship sharks also have few qualms about the occasional human casualty. Here, for example, is Vic Pettimores, the Chief Shark Researcher at the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, joking about the death toll in Western Australia in 2012. Yeah. And sure, this year, you know, in Western Australia, of course, there has been a little bit of a bumper season. Um, <laughs> but I, I believe this is an anomaly, and next year it will be back down to the normal levels that we would expect. It's not. There have been at least 10 fatal attacks in WA alone since 2013. I say at least because there have been a few mysterious disappearances from beaches in WA that may or may not have been caused by the state's burgeoning great white and tiger shark population. But if you look at the cultural and political momentum, you'd have to say they favour the sharks. It is depressing to anyone who, like me, isn't convinced that the survival of the entire marine environment relies on the comprehensive protection of lethal man-eaters and, in fact, values human lives higher. 
But there may be a glimmer of hope that is not cultural or political, but legal. The politicians I showed you before were gathered to support the proposal to not install nets at our most popular beaches, including, most famously, Bondi. And it is here that in 1997, an incident occurred that may have a significant bearing, not only on whether the nets go in this summer, but even whether former shark attack victims might one day file a class action lawsuit. Guy Swain entered the water between the flags at Bondi in 1997 and dived through a wave. He hit a sandbar, suffered a spinal injury and became a quadriplegic. His lawsuit against the Waverley Council, which managed the beach, went all the way to the High Court in 2005. Swain won, receiving $3.75 million in damages. The High Court said the council had a duty of care to minimise foreseeable risk. Well, would the same apply to the foreseeable risk of a shark attack? There's no doubt that the council acknowledges the risk is foreseeable because it had placed the nets there in the first place. There is an interesting parallel here with another class action currently before the federal court, which claims the federal government and various other departments and their management were negligent and or mal misfeasant in promoting and administering the COVID vaccines. These two cases refer to different laws, but the political and cultural context is quite similar. In both cases, authorities were, or are, complying with a popular policy that nevertheless caused, or is causing, unnecessary harm to innocent people. You'd have to say, given the Swain versus Waverley case, a class action lawsuit among shark attack victims might just have a chance. And if nothing else, we might finally see the nets going in at Bondi this summer after all. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website, adh.tv or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. See you next week, next Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.